Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk, Biblical Law and Sharia, from our audio collection titled Christianity and Islam. That collection can be found on the Canon Press audio store at canonpress.com. If the topic of Christianity and Islam interests you, I'd like to also point you towards Pastor Wilson's Empires of Dirt, subtitled Secularism, Radical Islam, and the Mere Christendom Alternative. It really ought to be 2020 mandatory reading. The relationship of the biblical faith to the Islamic faith, and we've contrasted the two at a number of places. And I want to contrast the two this morning at the, uh, on the subject of law. I want to talk about Islam and, and the Islamic approach to law and the biblical approach to law. In this series, we've referred from time to time to the concept of Sharia law. Sharia law is Islamic law. This is a distinctively Islamic concept but it is important for us to see exactly where the distinction is. It is not, and this is the important thing, this is the crucial issue, it is not because Muslims believe that their God should make the laws. That's not the distinction. Everyone believes that. Everyone believes that their God should make the laws, and whenever you find out what someone says, what entity uh, should be making the laws, you have discovered the God of that person's system. Every person, the secularist, the Christian, the Muslim, the Buddhist, everyone believes that their God should make the laws. The issue is far more subtle than simply saying Muslims believe that their God should make the laws and secularists or pluralists believe that God's, God or gods should not make the law. Secularists or pluralists are revealing that pluralism, democracy, is their God. Whoever makes, the go whoever makes the law is the God of the system. All societies, in other words, all societies are therefore theocratic. It's, it's, uh, it's a question not whether the, your God is going to make the law, but which God is going to make the law. So the issue is far more subtle than saying that Muslims believe that their God, Allah, should make the laws. They, they have a distinctive approach to law because every god is distinct, and so the law order of any particular god is going to reflect the character of the god of the system. So in order to uh, resist the temptations created by the confusions of secularism and pluralism, we have to resist not only the Islamic error, but we also have to resist the typical secularist error, and the typical secularist error is the error that we've been catechized in. That's the error that we've grown up in. That's the one that we're used to. The Islamic approach to Sharia law sometimes is scary to us, not because it's unbiblical, it's scary to us because it's different. And, and so we say, oh no, we don't want Islamic law, we don't want that. Not because it's unbiblical, but because it's different. And we're very comfortable with the, the, the idolatries that we grew up with. We're comfortable with the erroneous assumptions that we uh, were established in. And we want, to be t we want to take care not to do that. We do not resist Islam as secularist Westerners. We resist Islam as Christians. And because we're Christians, we must also resist our current homegrown secularism. And there's no subject better than law to reveal all the, all the different issues that are involved in this. So in the text that I read, in Romans 13, 8 through 10, consider this. Paul says that Christians are to live in such a way that the only obligation they have, he says, owe no one anything except, the only obligation they have toward one another is that of love. The only obligation that you have toward God and toward your neighbor is the obligation of love. Owe no man anything except the obligation, except the debt of love, Paul says. If we do this, St. Paul says, then we have fulfilled the law. If we love one another, he says, we have fulfilled the law. Now, why is this? He points out the obvious fact, or what should be obvious, that if a man loves his neighbor, then he will not sleep with his neighbor's wife, he will not murder his neighbor, he will not steal his stuff, he will not lie about him in court, he's not going to covet his possessions. If he loves his neighbor, he's not going to attack his neighbor. 
He's not going to violate his neighbor's privileges and, and, and possessions. This is not only the case, Paul says in our text, this is not only the case with the Ten Commandments, but notice he says, and if there be any other commandment. All right, so he recites a number of the Ten Commandments, not all of them. He recites a number of these Ten Commandments, and he says, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to do these things to him. And he says, on top of that, if there's any other commandment, you're not going to do that either, if you love your neighbor. So he applies this, the apostle applies this to every commandment that might be found in the law. All the commandments that God has given us in the Old Testament are an expression of love. This is why we as Christians cannot accept the, uh, the slander. The, it's, a, it's an awful uh, doctrine. The, the idea that the Old Testament is the word of God put out to pasture. The, the Old Testament is the word of God emeritus. It's sort of uh, dignified, old, useful in his time, but we gave him his watch and sent him on his way. Um, we don't have that attitude toward the Old Testament at all. The Old Testament, in the expression of the law that God gave to his people throughout the Old Testament, is an expression of love. And love does not go out of fashion. Love does not change. It's, it, God is love, the Apostle John tells us. And because God is love, his law is going to express the character, that central characteristic of him. And his law is going to be a, an expression and embodiment of love. Love does no harm to its neighbor, Paul argues. And what the law prohibits is doing harm to your neighbor. All right, love doesn't harm the neighbor. And what the law does is it informs you and teaches you what your love ought to look like. The, you might be standing there full of good feeling. You might be standing there brim, brim full of good feeling, wanting to do good things to your neighbor. But the law tells you what constitutes good things. And it presupposes that you're wanting to do the right thing by your neighbor. So this should not be that hard. Love does no harm to its neighbor. God gives us the law to tell us what does, in fact, harm our neighbor. And, he, and, and this is given to us in the book of Romans, which is in the New Testament. So he's telling the Roman Christians, a bunch of Gentiles, he says to the Gentile Romans, owe no one anything except the debt of love. And then he tells these Gentile Romans, he gives them a bunch of the Ten Commandments, and he says, these commandments and whatever, whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one thing, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, is Paul arguing this way because he, he says he wants the Roman Christians to say, oh, we're New Testament Christians, we're under grace, we're not under law? No. He says love has not gone out of fashion. Love has not passed away. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and was buried and rose again from the dead, that was not the action that God took to remove love from the world. That was the ultimate expression of love in the world, and consequently, the law, understood this way, has not been retired. It's not been, it's not been rejected. There's a sense in which the law is dealt with decisively, and I hope that we can address that uh, a little bit later. The fact that it's not hard for us to understand that, that love does no harm to its neighbor and the law is teaching us how to do no harm to our neighbor, the fact that this is not hard does not blind us to the fact that there are profound depths here. Consider the fact that we've learned that God is love in 1 John 4.8. Now remember that Allah is the ultimate hermit. Allah is a monad. Allah is a loner. Allah has no distinction of persons within him. So before the creation of the world, he was the ultimate bachelor, the ultimate loner, the ultimate hermit. Before the creation, the Christian affirms that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit were an everlasting triune society, and the bond that ties them all together is love. God is love. And so when John tells us that God is love, and we understand that the law is an expression of that love, we need to understand the law, rightly understood, is going to be a Trinitarian expression. If we don't understand the law in a Trinitarian and incarnational way, we are going to slip into an Islamic understanding of law. This is very important because many Christians have not adequately distinguished between what Trinitarian law looks like and what Unitarian law would look like. I've, I've emphasized a number of times that God is the ultimate loner, God is the ultimate force, God, God is not being the one who is love. When he creates the world, the relationship between him and the world is that of power, force, coercion. One of the things that's really uh, striking when you read the Quran, which I, um, I read the Quran once back in the 80s and, and then in, 
involved with preparing these messages. I've read through the Quran again. And one of the things that's striking when you read through the Quran is that this religion is the ultimate carrot, uh, carrot and stick religion. All right, just every few verses, people are being threatened with everlasting damnation if they don't do what they're told, and they're promised, with, uh, they're promised a paradise beyond uh, uh, all reckoning if they do what they're told, and it's up to Allah to determine whether you did as you were told or not. You can never know in this life if you were good enough, if you, if you achieved, and so this, um, this is put over the heads of Muslims, uh, a Muslim is someone who is in submission to this powerful God who decrees and says, you will do as you're told. If you don't do as you're told, I'm going to pour molten brass all over you. I'm going to torment you forever and ever and ever. And I'm going to remind you of it on average every eight verses in the Quran. This is, I'm going to pound you. I'm going to hit you. If you don't do it, I'm going to, I'm going to coerce you. And I'm going to reward you lavishly if you do as you're told. Now, what happens when you worship a God like that? You become like that. And this is something we've emphasized over and over again. If you worship the triune God, you become like the triune God. If you worship the God of power, of authority, just absolute decrees, don't argue with me, no back chat, that's what you're going to become like. And that's why Muslim societies are the way they are. It's not an accident. So, rightly understood, obedience to the law Biblically, obedience to biblical law is the imitation of Christ. This is what our God is like. The law embodies what God is like. Now, I want to uh, give a couple of qualifications before we look at this in more detail. First, remember that all law is religious law. All law is religious law. Remember that in any society, once you've identified the source of law, you've there, you have therefore, at that point, identified the God of the system. All states and all cultures and all societies are therefore theocracies. When people say, they, we don't want a theocracy here, they are saying, we don't want your God. They are not saying, we don't want a theocracy, because we have a theocracy. All societies are theocracies. The thing that distinguishes one society from another is which God is represented, not whether a God is represented. It may be demos, which is the Greek word for the people, which gives us the word democracy. Right? Demos, as the people, the voice of the people, comes, this comes out in uh, the Latin expression, vox populi, vox dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God, which is the, which is the, the motto of a radical democrat. Vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God. I'm more than a little bit sympathetic with um, the Civil War general who said, vox populi, vox humbug. Um, but that, that aside, the voice of the people is the voice of God. If demos is the, if there, you, in every society, you get to a point past which there is no appeal. When you get to the point past which there's no appeal, and in a secular society, that is the voice of Demos, the people, you have found the God of the system. That voice past which there's no appeal is the source of law. That is the, that is the voice of the supreme being in that system, or as we call it, the supreme court. The supreme court thinks that there's no appeal past them. A man can't, in, in, according to their law, according to their understanding, a man cannot come into the Supreme Court, open up his Bible, and say, there is a God in heaven above you. You may not decree that it's all right to dismember little babies. And if you do decree that, then God is going to throw you headlong into hell if you persist in that mentality. God is a judge above you. You are not the supreme being. But in a, in a pluralistic, secularist society, that uh, that mentality is we, we are the supreme authority. There's no appeal past us. Your appeals are exhausted. So in a secular society, Demos is the god of the system, or it may be Allah, as it is in Islamic states, or it may be the god and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it is never nothing. A society, by definition, organizes itself in such a way as to penalize certain forms of behavior and to reward other forms of behavior, and you're going to do that according to a standard, and an intelligent sophomore can ask you what the standard is. Right? You, you say it's not okay to steal bicycles. You say it's not okay to rape people. You say it's not okay to conduct white-collar crime and, and insider trading, and you, you, say, you make, pass all these laws. 
Why? Why? Who says? And at some point, you're going, to have, you're going to be back up against the wall, and you're going to say, there's going to be no more discussion past this. We are making this determination because we the people, or because Allah says, or because the triune God says, you will at some point appeal to the God of the system. It is never nothing. All laws are imposed morality. There's no such thing as a law that isn't an imposition of morality. So the only question is, which morality? Whose voice? Whose law? When someone says that, when a Christian says that we believe that children ought not to be, uh, children in the womb ought not to be aborted, we are making a moral determination and we are saying that the law ought to impose a particular morality. But there's no way out of this. It's not us, it's not us busybody Christians coming into the political process insisting that somebody impose on somebody. You know, I looked over there and there was this big happy society and nobody was imposing on anyone. And that was obviously intolerable to us right-wing religious nut Christians. And so we came over and we said, let's pass a law so that, so that we can impose on somebody. No. It's not whether, but which. It's not whether you're going to impose, it's which law you're going to impose, and in whose name, and by what standard. Currently, the doctor and the mother impose on the child. Christians want to impose on the doctor and the mother. All right? But somebody's imposing on someone. There's no such thing as a place where you can go and say, let's just be neutral. There is no neutrality. There cannot be any neutrality. Not only is neutrality, not only is public political neutrality a mistake, it's not just a mistake, it's not just an error, it's incoherent. Everyone is going to say, you can't do that. And when you say, why can't I do that? They're going to give you an answer. And that answer is going to be ultimately, fundamentally, a religious answer. But, having said this, and this is the important point to make, this is the distinction we must make as we are contrasting the Christian faith with the Islamic faith. Once this point is made, and it has to be made again and again and again and again because we have been drilled. We've had the secularist, pluralistic catechism drilled into our heads since the time we were little. We've heard it in countless ways. We've heard it from Christians. We've heard it from pulpits. There are respected theologians who go into print arguing for this. They'll call it principled pluralism. Christians need to accommodate themselves to a pluralistic society and whatnot. But nobody, nobody lives like this, really. You know, when suppose, suppose a candidate runs for office and he's well-known, he's a well-known church member. He goes to church faithfully. He worships God faithfully. One of the first questions that will come up at the first press conference is, do you intend to let your faith govern in any way your decision-making process? While you hold public office, do you intend to let your faith have any impact at all on your decision-making process while in office? Now, hint, the answer to this question is no, I have no intention of allowing my faith to affect my personal decisions. That's my, that's my approach. No, my faith, this is the drill, this is the catechism, right? You've all heard it before. My faith is very precious to me. It's a very private thing for me, and it's very important. It's one of the most important things in my life, my wife's life, too. We, we, we keep it private, the two of us. And then, of course, six months later, when the guy's elected and in office, and he's convicted of embezzling $200,000, uh, stealing from the public funds, what would happen if someone said, uh, Representative uh, Senator Snoutwurst, you have been caught with, you've been caught with your hand in the till. You've stolen. $200,000 from the American taxpayer. What would happen if he stood up and said, you know, when I was running for office, I, I'm not going to apologize this for this at all, because when I was running for office, I specifically said that I would not let my faith, which is very precious to me, affect anything that I did while I was in public office. And my faith prohibits stealing from the American taxpayer. But that's a private conviction of mine. That's a private conviction of mine, and I have no intention of letting my private convictions interfere at any, in any way with me pillaging as I see um, my opportunities. Everybody would be outraged at this, and the, and, and the reason they'd be outraged at this is because it would be immediately apparent, with 30 seconds reflection, that the emperor has no clothes. Of course your private faith can't be private. There's no such thing as a private faith. The only people who can successfully isolate a private faith inside and not have it affect their actions outside would be called schizophrenic. That is not 
that is not an option for thinking individuals at all. So, once we have it drilled into our minds that there's no such thing, there's no possibility of having your faith not affect the way you live, at your work, in your marriage, as you mow the lawn, as you discharge your obligations, and in, if you hold public office, if, if, if it's inescapable, then we are faced with some interesting questions and some hard questions. So we have to make this question, we have to make this point again and again. But there's a very easy mistake that we can make here. Secularists almost universally make this, and many, and perhaps even most, Christians who have grown up with the surrounding pluralist catechism make the same mistake also. This is the mistake of thinking that a law order based on the will of Allah would have to be very similar to a law order based on the will of the triune God. All right? That's the assumption. Anybody, if religious people come in and religious people start running things, if religious people start making decisions, everybody knows what religion does, right? Religion flies planes into skyscrapers. Religion is, uh, wrecks mayhem on everyone. Religious, religions cause wars of religion and so on. And so what people will say is that a religious theocracy that's Christian would be indistinguishable from a Muslim theocracy. But if you've been following one of the themes, one of the central themes of this series of messages, you will see instantly that this would only be possible if there was no distinction to speak of between the monistic Allah and the triune God of Scripture. If these gods are essentially the same, then a society patterned after each of these gods would be essentially the same. But if these gods are radically different, and if a people worshiping a particular god come to take on the characteristics of the god they worship, remember Psalm 115, those who make them, those who make idols, those who make them become like them. The idols cannot see. The idols cannot speak. The idols cannot walk. Those who make them become like unto them. The New Testament tells us that we worship Jesus Christ and we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We are becoming more and more like Jesus to the extent that we worship Jesus. To the extent that idolaters worship idols, they become more and more like the idols they worship. This is a basic scriptural truth. This is why worship is so important to us as Christians. This is why we want to gather every week and worship God because we want to be conformed to the image of his son. This is what we're predestined to. This is what God's doing through his Holy Spirit. He's knitting us together, knitting us together into the head who is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what worship is all about. So if the triune God of Scripture is indistinguishable from Allah, then societies based on the triune, a society based on the triune God of Scripture with its law order would be indistinguishable from a society based on the law order or the will of Allah. If the characters of these gods are functionally the same, then the societies are going to be functionally the same. They would have their red shirt Sharia law, and we would counter with our light red shirt theonomy. Theonomy is the... A combination of namas is law and theos is God. So theonomy is the law of God. There was a controversy in the reformed world a couple of decades ago about theonomy. Um, do we take the biblical law and do we apply biblical law to modern contemporary societies? That was the theonomic debate and it raged pretty um, vigorously in the 80s and and revealed a lot of things and people still today will say are you a, the are you a theonomist? Do you believe do you believe in theonomy, do you believe in God's law? And of course the Christians should say, oh no, no, I hate God's law. And they say, oh come on, you know what I mean. But do you, do you believe that God's law should be applied today? Well, I'm a Christian, what else do, what else do you think I, th I think should be applied? No, I'm a Christian, I think we should have Buddhist law. Would somebody talk sense for a minute? Of course, every Christian, once the exegesis is done, every Christian has to understand that if we believe that this book is the Word of God, and this Word of God is the Word of God not just to private Christians for their quiet time, but it is also the Word of God to the nations. If this is the Word of God to the nations, and God says in this book to the nations, you shall not dismember children in the womb, and this Word says to the nations, you may not conduct homosexual marriages. If this Word says to the nations, you may not declare war on your neighbor who did nothing to you simply because you want their oil or simply you want their resources, you may not do that. All right? John the Baptist stood up to Herod and said, you may not. Now, 
This vision assumes that the Trinity, this vision of saying that if we, just, if we allow the, the sacred book to have anything to say about it, then everything's going to go bad and it's all going to be the same. This vision of their red shirt Sharia law and our light red shirt theonomy assumes that the Trinity is culturally meaningless and that any talk of biblical law is simply going to get us a bunch of weird beards, if you know what I mean, reformed ayatollahs and theonomic imams with a yen to start up some kind of inquisition. We're going to, you know, we haven't killed anybody in the name of God for several centuries and we want to kill somebody in the name of God. Um, that is what secularists are afraid of. And there are some people out in the world who behave in such a way that more than halfway make the secularists point. One of the slanders leveled against this ministry by the Southern Poverty Law Center was an article that said that we, here in Moscow, were trying to set up a Taliban on the Palouse. That's, that's one of the central charges. We're trying to set up a Taliban on the Palouse. Now, of course, the Taliban was the radical Muslim state in Afghanistan, and conservative Christians are portrayed as trying to do exactly the same thing Right? You've got their red shirt, we've got our, it's a different hue red, it's a slightly different color, but basically it's the same thing. This is just simply false. This is simply false. Now I want to, uh, I want to point out two things, and I want you to keep this in the back of your mind as we talk about biblical law. Biblical law, as you, go, as you read through Genesis through Malachi in the Old Testament, there are two things that should uh, become immediately obvious to you. The first thing is when you read through the Old Testament law, is it's revealed that it's a case law system. A case law system presupposes that situations and circumstances will change and that wise judges, godly judges, are expected to keep the law current to accommodate the, the changing circumstances. The easiest example is the Old Testament law requires all the Jews to have a parapet around the roof of their house. If someone falls off your, the roof of your house and they break their neck and you didn't have a parapet around the roof of your house, then you are liable for that action. And this would be, you're liable for that accident because you need to have a parapet. You need to have a, a railing around the roof of your house. Now, no good Christian that I know of today believes that Christians, if, in order to be, walk with God, you have to have a deck railing around the roof of your house. I don't know anyone who has a railing around the roof of their house. And this is not a violation of the law because this was a case law system. It was a common law system. So if we had a biblical law order today, the judge would say, you, do, you need to have a uh, railing around your second story deck and this fellow fell off and he broke his neck and you should have had that done. You were negligent and you, were, you can be held liable for your negligence because people spend time on second story decks. Nobody today spends any time on their roof, right? except some people who are into radical dispensationalism waiting for the rapture. But that, that's a relatively small group of people, and that only happens from time to time. So what happens is you have the principle. The principle is that you are responsible to shovel your walk. You, you are responsible to cover your well. If some little kid in the neighborhood falls down your well and you left it uncovered, you are responsible for that. That's, that's how case law system works. And so when you read through the Old Testament, you will expect changes in application in the Old Testament, even within the confines of the Old Testament. So as society changes and develops, as architectural designs change and develop, you don't have a requirement if someone said, okay, you're king for a day, are you going to make everybody in the United States put a parapet around the roof of their house? No, this is a common law system. This is a case law system. In, in fact, King Alfred, who established the, the history of common law, who established the heritage of common law in 49 of our 50 states and in England, did so by establishing the laws of Deuteronomy. When he was as the first king of England, he established the laws of Deuteronomy as the laws of England. But he didn't just bring the, the content of the laws over, he brought over the system where you decide by precedent, you make principled applications of what, what is the principle behind this, and you make an intelligent application of the principle to the changing circumstances. That's the first thing. Biblical law is a case law system. It's not a code that anticipates every eventuality. It's a code that expects us to grow up into maturity, applying the principles as God leads us. Secondly, if you read through, through the Old Testament, and this is very important, as you read through the Old Testament, not only do you read biblical law, but you read um, prophecy after prophecy of the coming Messiah. 
the coming Messiah is going to transform Israel. He's going to remake Israel. He is going to suffer. He's going to be executed. He's going to come back from the dead. Jesus told his disciples that all of this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, going to Jerusalem, knowing what was going to happen to him there, and he knew what was going to happen to him there because the scriptures foretold it. So the, the entire Old Testament is all about the Messiah of Israel, the new Israel who comes, and he's killed. And so keep this in mind as well. When Jesus was killed, the law of Israel was killed with him. The Apostle Paul tells us explicitly that the ordinances, the law in Colossians, the law was nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Now, there are some antinomians, the people who are against the law, who say, yeah, the law died there with Jesus and good riddance because I want to live under grace. No, what happens when, God, when, when something dies like that in the Bible? What's the pattern? It's death and resurrection. So one of the things we should look for is the resurrection of the law, not just the death of the law in the death of Jesus Christ, but the resurrection of the law in the person of Jesus when he comes back from the dead. And this is not inconsistent because remember that the entire law is an expression of God's character that is given to us in Jesus Christ himself. So when Jesus Christ comes back from the dead, we see even more clearly than we saw in the law, what God is like. We saw in the law what God is like, but then God gave us a perfect human being who embodied in all of his behavior the perfections of the law. We then saw what God is like, God is like in the obedience to the law. And then when Jesus died on the cross, taking all our sins on him and coming back from the dead, we then see what God is like in all his glory. Now this is, this is the important thing. I want us to compare... Uh, uh, Sharia law with biblical law with these things in mind. In many ways, Islam is a radical form of Judaizing. In many ways, the uh, Islamic law is stuck in another era and it doesn't have any sense of, of uh, redemptive development in history. Sharia law is a combination. The Quran, the Hadiths, the Hadiths are anecdotes, as I told you before, stories, and there are many of them, stories that are told about uh, Muhammad and have been passed down, and the Hadiths are considered by Muslims to be authoritative. They're not at the same level as the Quran, but they are certainly used to interpret the Quran, and they are part of Sharia law. The Quran, the Hadiths, and then decisions that have been made in the past by Islamic judges. Consider this story from one Hadith. A woman had committed adultery and had become pregnant as a result. She came to the prophet Muhammad, and she confessed her adultery to him. She was told by the prophet to go away and have the baby. Uh, don't ask me this question until after you've had the baby. She came back after she had the baby, and she was told to go away again. The prophet told her to go away again until after the baby was weaned. After the baby was weaned, she came back again and was buried up to her neck and stoned. Right? That's how Muhammad dealt with the woman who confessed adultery. And this hadith is repeated and, and told by Muslims as an example of the prophet's compassion. See, he allowed her to have the baby, and he allowed her to wean the baby, and then he commanded her to be buried up to the neck and stoned until she was dead. Compare this to the law embodied by our Lord Jesus. What did Jesus do for the Samaritan woman who had had six men, and only five of them uh, husbands? In John 4, 18. What did Jesus do when the immoral woman washed his feet? In Luke 7, 36 through 50. What did he do for the woman that was caught in the very act of adultery? In John 8, 11. What did Jesus do in these instances where he was uh, interacting with an immoral woman? A woman who was not obeying the law of God in sexual matters. In the John 8 case, there's no dispute over the woman's guilt. Jesus, uh, however, confronts her accusers and says, Whoever's, uh, who, uh, um, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And I don't believe Jesus was saying you can't, ex you can't execute God's law here unless you've lived a sinlessly perfect life. I believe Jesus was talking about that particular sin. Whichever one of you is without the sin of adultery, you cast the first stone. Part of the reason for thinking this is that the, there's a trial by or ordeal in the Old Testament where if a man suspects his wife is cheating on him, he brings the charge and the priest writes in the, uh, 
writes the charge and then washes the charge off into a, a thing of water and the woman drinks it. And, and, and what this does is it puts the, the husband on trial as well as the wife. The husband was not allowed to just accuse his wife. When the priest wrote the charge and then in the temple he wrote the charge and then the woman drank, um, uh, drank this charge basically. If nothing happened and she were proven to be innocent and the strange thing had to happen in order to convict her, the miracle had to happen in order to convict, then if she was found innocent, then the husband suffered the penalty of having made a false accusation. The, the accuser was put on trial as well. And I find something significant. That when the woman was caught in adultery and they brought her to him, Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust of the temple floor. I don't think he had a parchment there. I think he wrote the charge in the dust of the temple floor. And then he said, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. The men who were accusing her were on trial as well. Jesus was a remarkable prophet. He was a remarkable man. Of course, you might say, well, of course, he was God. But don't fall into the God in a man suit um, uh, heresy. Jesus was not a man outside and God inside. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And he was completely different than the prophet Muhammad. The way this is embodied, he's completely different than the prophet Muhammad. The difference, the ultimate difference here is the cross of Jesus Christ, which we're going to consider in a separate message. The cross of Jesus Christ is important. It's central in all this because according to Muslims, Jesus did not die on the cross. And according to Christians, it is absolutely essential that our Lord Jesus have died on the cross. The law which was against us, Paul tells us in Colossians 2.14, the law which was against us was taken away and nailed to the cross. Now, please follow me here. This is not antinomianism. This is not when, when God kills the law, when God nails the law to the cross. That does not mean that now, after Jesus has risen from the dead, that, that there's, we have no law, we have nothing to instruct us, we have nothing to follow, we have no uh, guidance from the word of God. That's not the case at all. What God kills, God raises from the dead. And this includes his precious and his holy law. But it's resurrected law. It's not law that's caught in a time warp. It's not law that's frozen in time. It's not law that's applied as though Jesus did not come, die on the cross, be buried and rise again from the dead. It's not law like that. It, but it shows, all this law shows that the grace of God governs everything. The love of God was behind the creation of the world. The love of God was behind the giving of the law in the first place. The love of God was behind the sending of the Son to die on the cross. And at, within the context of grace, we do find law. Grace has a backbone. It's not like uh, if, if you believe in grace, then all bets are off and anybody can do anything they want. We are not antinomian. But we want law surrounded by grace, not the other way around. If you want uh, law, just raw law, then Islam is the religion for you. It's just straight law. Do what I say or I'll beat you up forever and ever. And if you obey me, then I'm going to reward you. I'm going to give you treats. I'm going to pound you or I'm going to reward you. And that's, that's the ultimate carrot and stick religion. Christians believe in death and resurrection because they follow their Lord Jesus who died and who rose again from the dead. Never forget that Jesus, in his teaching, in his example, in his suffering on the cross, and, his, and, and in his resurrection, he's exhibiting the law of God. Remember, the law is what God's like. The law expresses what God's like. But the death of Jesus and his resurrection, that also expresses what God's like, and the two are not inconsistent. So never forget, this is the law of the triune God, who in the person of his Son becomes one of us in order to die on the cross. This is triune law, this is incarnate law. This is resurrection law. This is love. Now, don't rush ahead and say, well, you, you mean in a Christian society nobody could ever be executed for anything? Well, and the answer is, of course not. Jesus himself in the Gospel of Mark takes some, uh, quotes some passages from the Old Testament that required capital punishment. He says in, in the Gospel of Mark, he said, the, the word of God says that you should do this, but you have gotten around it and, and you set aside the law of Moses for the sake of your tradition. Jesus was not embarrassed by the requirement of the law to execute certain people for certain things. That's not the issue. The issue is that the Trinitarian 
God results in a completely different kind of society than the Unitarian God does. Radical Muslims want, to return, want a return to the caliphate. In Islamic societies, what was a caliph? The best way to think of this office is to imagine an emperor and a pope rolled into one person. You have the emperor who's got the political sphere, and then you've got the pope, the ecclesiastical sphere. You combine them in one person. Because in Islam, there's no such thing as a separation between church and state. There's one God, there's one ruler, one law, radical unity. If you worship a non-Trinitarian God, if you worship this radical Unitarian God, then your society is going to reflect that radical unity all the way down. You're not going to make distinctions. You're not going to divide power. You're not going to have checks and balances. You're not going to do that. Why? Because you've got a solitary God at the top. Remember that a monistic God is going to have followers who want to eradicate distinctions. Right? If, if, you're, if the Godhead is not a Godhead at the top, but a solitary God without distinctions, you're going to have a, a society without distinctions or a society at war with distinctions. Now, of course, you're going to be in trouble because the society that you're governing was actually created by the triune God and not by Allah. And so you're going to have all these distinctions popping out where, you know, every time you turn around, you're going to have distinctions coming out. But you're going to want to eradicate them as much as you can. But our triune God is the God of unity and diversity, both in perfect balance. We are blessed with the glory of form and freedom, both. How can a society have form, structure, and freedom? This is what happens. The polytheists have freedom for temporarily. They, they've got chaos at the top, all these different gods. And then you've got multiple gods in the society. And you have chaos, anarchy. And then you have control. You have the control freak God who controls everything, and then you have absolute control. It's in societies that, that have been shaped by the gospel of our triune God, the gospel of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It has been those societies and those societies only that have developed a tradition of form and freedom. Those societies only are those that have a balance between structure and liberty. If you want to reject the God of the Bible, you have to go into the pandemonium of anarchy or you have to go into some sort, of, some sort of totalitarian state. If you want balance between form and freedom, there is no way to have it historically other than by a return to the worship of the triune God. We have the principle of unity, but because God is triune, it does not have to be a lockstep unity where everybody has to be exactly the same and do exactly the same thing and dress the same way and so on. Because God is triune. The Bible teaches a separation of church and state. Right? This doesn't distress us because in the Trinity, there's a separation of Father and Son. There's a separation of Son and Spirit. Separation doesn't threaten us. Right? Absolute division threatens the gospel, but separation, a distinction between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that kind of distinction is not threatening for the Trinitarian, right? Because these distinctions are bound together in unity, the, the one God and three persons. So, because God is triune, the Bible teaches a separation of church and state, a separation that goes back to the time of Moses. This is not something that was invented in 1776. We see this clearly in Scripture. Why was, why was Uzziah the king struck with leprosy? Although he was the king, he had no right to approach God as though he were the priest. In 2 Chronicles 26, 18. How was it that priests in this ancient Near East civilization, how was it that Uzziah the king said, I'm going to go in and I'm going to offer, uh, I'm going to uh, conduct this priestly function in the tabernacle. And how was it that priests dared to stand up to him and, and and say, no, you cannot do this. Yes, you're the king, but you can't come here. What is that? That's a separation of church and state. That's what that is. That's not the separation of church and state. Separation of church and state was not invented by Thomas Jefferson. Right? The separation of church and state is embodied in the law of Moses. God has established various spheres that are comparatively independent of one another. And remember, this is how the triune God structures society. There is sphere sovereignty. Different spheres have sovereignty in different areas. And these distinctions don't threaten us because we're Trinitarians. God has established various spheres that are comparatively independent of one another. The church is one society. The church is one entity. The church is one sphere created by God directly. 
and the church is God's ministry of grace and peace. The civil order is his ministry of justice, as we read elsewhere in Romans 13. The magistrate does not bear the sword for nothing. His job is to punish the wrongdoer and reward the righteous in the civil realm. The civil magistrate has a ministry given to it by God uh, two or three times in Romans 13. The Apostle Paul says that the civil magistrate is God's deacon, uses the word deacon, diakonos, is God's deacon of justice. The family, also established by God, is God's ministry of health, education, and welfare. God appoints these governments. God created the, the, government, the government of the church. God established the government of the state, not statism, not the idolatrous state, but the, the concept of civil government is ordered by God. No authority exists except that which is established by God, Paul says in Romans 13. So civil order, the, the civil order in principle is established by God. The church is established by God, and the family is established by God in the Garden of Eden. These are three governments that God established directly. The state does not create the family. The state does not create the church. The church does not create the state. The church does not create the family. The family does not create the church. These are independent spheres that God created directly, and these distinctions don't threaten us. Why? Because we're Trinitarians. That's why. These, these different governments can exist in harmony together because the three persons of the Godhead exist in everlasting harmony together. And what we need to do to get these governments these uh, spheres to function together harmoniously is we must worship God through Jesus Christ. That's what we must do. And we must reestablish the, the worship of God through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that we expect him to tie these things together. Here's the, here's the secularist mistake. The fact that these spheres are in their appointed tasks when the magistrate is executing justice, we, we don't have the right to step in and say, no, you can't do that. When the church is preaching the gospel, the government can't step in and say, no, you don't baptize that way, you have to baptize this way. Or no, you can't excommunicate that person. You have to, the, the, it's none of, the, none of the state's business. When the family is doing what God has charged the family to do, educate the children, for example. It's the Ministry of Health, Education, and Welfare. The state doesn't get to step in and say, you must do it this way as opposed to that way. When each government is operating within its appointed sphere, they are functioning, according to Scripture, in relative autonomy from the other spheres. But the fact that these spheres are in their appointed tasks independent of the other spheres has led to a grievous mistake. They are not independent of God and his Son and his Spirit. The separation of church and state, a biblical principle, is not the same thing as separation of God and state. The separation of church and state is not the same thing as the separation of God and state. It is not a separation of biblical law and state. It is not a separation of morality and state. Which, and, and if you follow the catechism, you have to say, yeah, my, my moral beliefs are all based on my religion, and I can't let my religion dictate anything, any of my behavior when I assume office. That is ludicrous. It's not a separation of morality and state. If Trinitarian culture is a possibility, then why would Christians want anything else? If culture shaped by the triune God and his, the form and freedom, the, the unity and diversity. If it's possible to have unity and diversity in a human culture because the people in that culture have returned to the worship of God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, if that's a possibility, then what Christian would not want that? What Christian would not want that? And if it's not a possibility, then why did Jesus tell us to disciple the nations? What was he talking about? What did he mean when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go disciple the nations? What did he mean by that? He meant that we were to disciple the nations. He meant that we were baptized. What, what are we to do? He, he explains himself. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go disciple the nations, comma, baptizing them. All right, baptizing them. Baptizing them into what? The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ told us to bring the doctrine of the Trinity and the incarnate life of the gospel to all the nations of men. And he didn't mean some of them. He didn't mean America and Canada. He meant Thailand. He meant, he meant Nigeria. He meant Poland. He meant Russia. He meant 
every nation of South America. He meant it all. All, the, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go disciple the nations. How do we do that? Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's what we're doing here today. We are not trying to take over by some sort of political means, and we're not trying to use secularist tools to accomplish this job. This job can only be accomplished by worship. This job can only, we want our worship to flow out of our worship service and into the streets. But our worship has to be rich and full and Trinitarian. Let's thank God together. Our Father, we live in a secularist time, in a secularist age. We pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us to identify this as the idolatry it is. We pray that we would not just acknowledge that it's idolatry. We pray that we would see it at a profound level. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and amen. amen. One good thing about this final charge is that if there's something really important that I was supposed to put in the sermon and forgot to do, I can just put it here, and that's, and that's what we're doing now. Pastor Lightheart wrote a wonderful essay called The Mirror of Christendom, where he argued that Islam was raised up by God to reflect the sins and follies and blemishes of Christendom to ourselves. We can see from their idolatrous misbehavior some of the places where we have failed, where we have stumbled, where we have fallen short. And what we have, we've been living in this enlightenment-driven secularist world for centuries now, and many, many Christians have made their peace with it, they've made their accommodation with it, and we are content to have the pluralist tent and just be another option within this plural, pluralist tent. And then along come the radical Muslims who say, nothing doing, all right? Our God, Allah, is not going to take its place on the shelf with all the other idols like you Christians have done. And we look at that and we see we're either going to have to try to get them to behave and become compromisers like us, or we're going to have to come to grips with what we have done. We need to repent of our idolatries. We cannot begin fighting the Muslim idolatry unless we repent of our own idolatry. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was Douglas Wilson's talk, Biblical Law and Sharia, from our audio collection, Christianity and Islam. If you'd like to hear the rest of those talks from that collection, head to canonpress.com.